welcome to another episode of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today, our guest is Amina Godier. She teaches English at the University of Miami, and she's written three critically acclaimed short story collections. Her latest is The Loss of All Lost Things. Thanks so much for joining us, Amina. Thank you for having me, Marva. The Loss of All Lost Things is just a lovely collection with beautiful prose and images that stay with you. Just as the title suggests, these stories are about loss, all kinds of loss, the loss of life, romantic relationships, youth, hope. Why did you want to really delve into this topic? I didn't necessarily set out to write about loss or I should say I wasn't aware that I was writing about loss when I was building this collection. Um, I was writing about the ways in which people engineer their own self-destruction, um, the ways they reach for things and sometimes are the vehicles that prevent themselves from getting the things that they want. And I went through maybe four or five drafts of the entire collection before I realized that um, that what the characters had most in common was loss. I had originally thought about calling the collection in situ, which is a Latin phrase that archaeologists use, um, and it refers to finding something in its last uh, place or in its last position, and it implies, you know, a lack of motion, something sort of standing still. And I thought that that was what a lot of the characters in the collection had, that they were sort of stuck in, in various places and positions. And I think that is something that unifies the collection, but also after um, reading the entire draft, I realized that one of the things they were connected by was loss, but it took me a while to see it because I originally envisioned loss the way I think a lot of people do as grief and death. Um, and once I thought of all the different variations and permutations of what loss could mean, different things that you could lose that were tangible as well as things that were intangible or ephemeral then I realized that what connected the stories was was loss because it's hard to sort of see that even with perhaps the last story in which what's really lost is like a town or morals or values so there are sort of microcosmic losses um, and then the collection also has macrocosmic losses that are maybe not as obvious to the reader. Well, in a lot of these stories, you see parents dealing with losses related to their children. Sometimes it's about a relationship deteriorating, and other times there's an actual physical loss of the child. I mean, more than once a child is just snatched uh, from their parents. What is it about that particular severed relationship that interests you as a writer? Um, I think one of the things that's most interesting to me about that type of loss is the way in which uh, agency is figured into it. Because there are things that you lose that you can regain that are in your control. Um, and someone being, someone going missing or someone being taken or snatched is not just a matter of agency. You can look as hard as you like and put as much effort or money or financial resources into that and still be prevented um, from recovering the person and I think it makes you have to deal with or, th or think about how to resolve a conflict that's unresolvable. A lot of other losses you can just sort of say okay well that thing is gone it's never coming back and I'm going to move on from it in this kind of way and I think when someone goes missing or is lost or snatched away 
there really isn't ever a, a closure or a, a resolution and what people decide to do with that or how they work with it or work through it or work around it, I think is um, interesting because I don't think there's a simple answer to it. Well, these stories are uh, pretty dark in some cases and, you know, there are some surprising twists here and there, but it's never a happy surprise. Um, What do you tap into when you're writing um, that allows you to sort of, you know, really go there with these situations that are just full of anguish and despair? I tap into one of my earliest mentors, and this was not a a real live mentor who taught me so much as a book that I used as my mentor. I'm a big fan of John Gardner's book, The Art of Fiction, um, in which he just gives tips for beginning writers or aspiring writers and It's not a craft book where each chapter is specifically about a a technique so much as, in my point of view, it's about the right, having the right mindset to be a literary writer and thinking about what's at stake and why you're writing and what your investment is. And I, I don't remember the quote off the top of my head, but I do remember a part in that book that particularly moved me where he said that you have to write as if you're writing for, you know, a person who's hanging over the ledge or someone who's sick or someone who's despairing basically for someone who is desperate or has no hope or is about to give up then maybe your book is the last thing that that person sees right so you have to write in a way that's honest and compassionate and true that could maybe bring that person back off the ledge or make the person who's ill or sick want to live meaning that you have to make some sort of human connection and he talks about you know that if you have that kind of an impulse or an investment in your writing that you shouldn't take shortcuts, that you shouldn't write stereotypes or write stick figures or write specifically just to just to titillate or, or entertain people that you're writing to make sort of human connections. And I guess for me that means writing things that are dark, but really just trying to look at situations that I think you know, too many people have gone through and endured and illuminate them in a way that shows how human those situations are. Well, although the settings vary for these stories, many of your characters are academics as you are. Do you often mind your work experiences for story ideas? I know that a lot of beginning writers don't like to be told show, don't tell, and they don't like to be told write what you know because it's sort of second nature to us now. But I think it just comes from writing what I know. So in my first collection, At Risk, I wrote about marginalized black youth growing up in New York during the crack epidemic because that's what I knew. That's where I'm from and that's how I grew up. In the second collection I wrote, um, Now We Will Be Happy, I wrote about uh, Afro-Puerto Ricans and New Ricans in New York in the same time area in uh, the 80s and 90s and going back and forth from New York to Puerto Rico and occupying that kind of limbo space that's not exactly immigrant and not exactly citizen because you know, Puerto Rico is a commonwealth of the United States and they're all citizens, but they get lumped in with all the other Hispanics and are pr- frequently treated and viewed as immigrants. And that's also my experience. Um, so I was writing about what I know. And since I'm an academic, <laughs> that is something 
that that I know. Um, but one of the things that it was interesting to me about it are the ways in which academia mirrors the corporate world sometimes because a lot of times people enter academia thinking they're escaping that, like thinking that you're just going to be focusing on the life of the mind and there and that there aren't going to be the sort of political and, and petty concerns that you think are only associated with people who are primarily um, money makers. And then to sort of look at that experience specifically in an African-American context where I think a lot of times, depending on whether your family comes from a lower or middle class background, art or academia is not always as respected as professions that people can sort of see in a tangible way. You know, a lot of um, people can sort of see what engineers, doctors, and lawyers do, and they can't always sort of see what academics do. And you get a lot of pushback in in families where people are trying to become upwardly mobile, and they think you don't do anything. <laughs> you know, they're just, oh, you just read books and you have the summers off. And so those are some of the things I try to explore, for instance, in the been meaning to say story where Leslie Singleton can't really understand or value what his daughter does as a professor and so he thinks that she's specifically avoiding visiting him and, and spending time with him because he doesn't really think that she works hard. Um, and in directory assistance I have a woman who was a graduate student and she didn't really understand what she was doing in graduate school because it's so ephemeral and she leaves academia in order to take a traditional nine to five uh, sort of civil servant job and finally feels like she has some structure in her life and that and that she's real because she can sort of see the tangible results of the work she produces each day. So that's something that I was exploring. Well, how does being a professor influence your work? Are you influenced by your students? Are you influenced by all of the reading that you have to do? And I, I obviously I know you're reading fiction, but I mean, you have to read so many other things as well. I mean, the research that you have to do for your job. Being a professor influences me because one of the things I'm always thinking about is the entire history of literature in the Western world. So I'm thinking about the canon that already exists, what kind of books need to be written um, to add to or open up and expand the, the canon. I'm, I'm thinking about the tradition of Western literature, the tradition of American literature, and then specifically the tradition of African American or Black literature, and what kind of stories have already been told and what kind of space or room that leaves for me. So for instance, I am a deep admirer of Baldwin and Ellison and Walker and Morrison and Hurston and Larson. But because those books have already been told and many of them have been very sort of graphic and have presented black figures in positions of tragedy, I have the space to write things that are much smaller. You know, because Ellison has already written Invisible Man and Morrison has already written the Bluest Eye and Beloved and Walker has already written The Color Purple. I don't really have to focus on characters who are sexually victimized or who are um, subjected to, to incest. And I can focus on more microcosmic relationships. I can focus on small moments of intraracial prejudice where black people victimize each other. 
um, or internalize certain values and oppress each other with it. I can focus on uh, interracial prejudice, but I can I can write smaller stories because I'm standing on a foundation where those larger stories have already been told. Well, as I mentioned, this is your third short story collection. What is it that you really like about the short form? I like getting to the end of it. <laughs> um, I'm a very impatient person. Uh, so when I hear that people spend seven, eight, ten years on a novel, I, I can't fathom doing that because I'm, you know, from New York. So I've got this like, get to the end. What's the point? Like, what's the point of all this? Like, where's the result? So what's the bottom line? So I write short stories and the bottom line is 20 pages later and I don't have to spend 10 years getting to it. Um, but I really like the idea of epiphanies and that's what attracts me to the short story form. The idea that you can have a small brief moment of illumination that opens up the world for the characters and hopefully also for the readers and that sort of defines what's at stake and who the characters are and then the story can come to a close and you know who they are like in that slice of their life but you can imagine that if someone were to come back and write another short story about them five years later that maybe they'd be different people and I think novels are more final in a way that um, short stories aren't and I sort of enjoy that open space at the end. Have you ever felt pressured though to write a novel? I wasn't even going to ask you that but I feel like so many times when people focus on the short form for sometimes for some people that's not enough. It's like well when are you why don't you write a novel or you can make one of these short stories a novel? I wouldn't say that I have been pressured to write a novel but I would definitely say that people have tried to pressure me to write a novel. Um, I'm pretty stubborn, so I'm going to do what I want. Um, but I get that question all of the time. And that question comes from readers and it comes from people in the publishing industry. And there is definitely a viewpoint that has a lot of followers who regard the short story or the short story collection as a kind of warm up for a novel. You know, they think of you know, short story collections as sprints and novels as long distance or, or country um, running and I've definitely had people in the publishing industry say well you know you're great at the short story but I really want to know if you can challenge yourself and that's why you should write a novel to you know not be comfortable and sort of challenge yourself and that would make sense if it weren't completely hypocritical because no one goes to novelists and says well you've written three novels so I'd really like to see you challenge yourself by writing a short story collection you know that no one's ever said that um, so there's definitely pressure but you know I I have a tradition of James Allen McPherson and Grace Paley and Chekhov and Raymond Carver and plenty of writers you know whose shoulders I'm standing on who have written themselves into existence and popularity just through short story collections so whenever people tell me that it can't be done I have examples in the back of my mind of people who have done it and who have done it well and even newer writers like George Saunders um, and Edith Perlman, who's written three fantastic collections, and I don't think she even started publishing until she was in her 60s, and now she's just killing it all over the place. So there's definitely pressure from the outside for me to write a novel, but luckily I listen to myself and not to others. Well, what are you working on right now? Right now I am working on book tour. <laughs> it has been very exhausting to have 
three books come out in five years so I'm not even thinking about what else I'm going to write it took so long um, and so much effort to get this last book out I've been heavily involved in the process with all three books because they're small independent presses so it's not a situation where I get to hand the book off and the publishers just do the rest and I relax so I've been very much involved in getting the book out and promoted and I'm still uh, working very hard towards that so it will be a few months before my brain has any space to uh, focus on new work but I bet it'll be short stories. Okay, well, we're going to switch gears now and just ask you a few questions about your reading life. Because here at Read More, we like to know how your life as a reader has affected your life as a writer. So what was the first thing that you remember reading that was really a game changer for you that made you say, wow, that really resonated with you, that still resonates with you today? Well, as a reader... I remember I was in an enrichment program in New York called Prep for Prep when there were other programs similar to it, but it's for gifted kids. And so when I was in fifth or sixth grade, you know, they were giving us reading material that was advanced beyond our uh, grade level. So we were reading Shakespeare, we were reading Brave New World and books like that. And I remember reading, um, being given some Tony Cade Bambara stories, um, Gorilla My Love. I was given to read when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And I won't say that it made me a writer, but it was one of the first stories where I felt like I saw my own world being represented because a lot of the short stories or short fiction that um, was given to me in middle and elementary school was had mostly white characters, but also mostly British or European characters. So there was a lot of you know, Catherine Mansfield and Eliot and George Dick, um, Charles Dickens and George Eliot and things like that. And so to see a short story set in Harlem, you know, or and to read a Baldwin story, to see stories about black people in New York, not necessarily in my borough, but in a city that I recognize, you know, to have streets described and people talking about hydrants and things that I saw all the time. Um, I think that definitely stayed with me. So I didn't have that experience that some writers have where they say, you know, they couldn't, they didn't see themselves in fiction. And so they had to write what they didn't see. I saw myself in fiction. And then um, in, when I was in middle school or an early adolescent, I think I read Brown Girl, Brown, Brown Stones for the first time, the Paula Marshall book, which is set in Brooklyn. And it's set in an area where my family used to live before we moved to um, Brownsville and East New York. So it's set in Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights. And so to read that book and hear about stoops and trolleys and parks that my family members went to, you know, that was also just be you know I guess I guess it just um, settled in the back of my mind but when I was in college um, a teacher of mine gave me Stuart Dybeck short story collection the coast of Chicago and he gave me a short story in there called pet milk and I definitely think that was one of the moments where I thought okay I really need to work hard to be a writer and I'll never be able to write a story as beautiful as this one and um, I definitely think that that story has been kind of like tacked up on a wall in my mental brain. I've published 85 stories and I still don't think I can write anything as beautiful as that one. So it's kind of like the carrot dangling before me. Well, if you were somehow in a situation where you could not read any new work, 
but you could only read three books you've read in the past. Now you could read those three books as much as you want, but just those three. Which three books would you choose? You sure it's three? It can't be like three and a half or four. <laughs> well, you you love the short story, so you could choose short story collections, and then you could you know mix know, it up. Oh, but there's like oh, okay, I would definitely take Beloved. I would take Stuart Dybeck's collection, The Coast of Chicago. And now here's where it gets really tough because I would want to take Juno Diaz's Drown, but I would also want to take Their Eyes Were Watching God. And I don't know which one I would take. Um, oh, gosh. Are you sure give me four? Okay, I'll give you four. Okay. Okay, I would take those four. And then I would roll up Jhumpa Lahiri's short story, Temporary Matter, in my back pocket. So I'd have four and a quarter. Is there a writer that you think most readers are sleeping on that you really enjoy, but it seems like the person is just not getting the attention that they deserve? There are too many writers like that, and a lot of them are writers of color. Um, I think in the writing world, people respect Percival Everett, but he is just so phenomenal. He's written so many books, and they're so different. He has such a depth and range that I can't understand why the whole world isn't sort of clamoring to him. He has a novel called Erasure, which I think is one that people know really well, but it's just hilarious and smart and witty and good and he's got 15 other books in addition to to that one and I think that far more people um should read him and know who he is there are so many writers that are normal to me that I don't know if people are are sleeping on them or not you know there's David Haynes who is a great fiction writer um, and there are a lot of newer writers who are not necessarily being paid as much attention to. There's Chanelo. Wait, is this a thing where I'm only supposed to pick one? Oh no, you can pick as many as okay. you like. <laughs> okay. Cause, you know. I mean, I think I did ask you, is there a writer? Oh. But, but, but I'm gonna but I'll be nice and let you go. You can give more than one. So Percival Everett and Oh, the pressure. The pressure of just narrowing it down. Ravi Howard, Chinelo Ogparanta. Hmm. There is a new book that came out recently by Julie Iromanya, which is very good. I've started reviewing books, and so a lot of times I'm seeing them before other people see them, so I'll. I don't know if people are paying attention to them because I'm seeing them six months early. <laughs> um, wow. Aaron McGraw, so these other writers I'm naming now are, are not writers of color, but uh, Aaron McGraw is a, is a fantastic fiction writer. Um, Robert Boswell, he is a great writer. He's married to Antonia Nelson, and a lot of people read her short stories, which are great, but he is also a good fiction writer, um, and people should definitely be reading both of them. Randall Keenan, Margot Livesey. I think these are writers that writers know, but that the outside world um, doesn't necessarily know who they are. It, it's, it's this thing where if you haven't won a Pulitzer Prize or a National Book Award, a lot of people won't know 
who you who you are. There's a fiction writer, Caitlin Horrocks, who wrote a short story collection that came out four years ago that was um, just really fantastic um, and really fantastic and great. There was a new writer, Jakira Diaz. She doesn't have a book yet, but she has lots of essays. And man, she's like so fierce and just tough and just badass. And she's awesome. Okay, there are more, but I know you're going to stop me. So I'll just start with those. Okay, that's good. So um, this is sort of a question on the flip side. Um, is there a book that you've tried to read maybe several times and you have not been able to get through it? And you're giving me that look, and I know this is a tough one. So if you want to mention maybe a writer who's no longer with us, so you <laughs> there be no one to be offended. Uh, but has there been a book like that for you that, you know, everybody else loves or maybe, you know, people say say it's great, but you just can't get into it? You just put me on the spot here. <laughs> there have been quite a few books that people said were great that I tried to read and I couldn't get into. And I am going to plead the fifth. You can't even give us one where, where the, the, the writer's not with us anymore. I would need to think about that one for a second, though. That's okay. Could I come back to that question? Yeah, we'll come back. I really only have one more question, though, for you, and, and that is very simple. What are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading books that I am uh, reviewing. I've For the past year and a half, I have been um, looking at different review sites and waiting about four to six months to see if books by women of color or writers of color appear on their list. And then when they haven't, I've been I've written to the review site and offered to review those books. So I've got about 10 books now that I'm uh, reviewing. I'm reviewing Theodore Wheeler's book, um, Bad Faith. He's actually not a writer of color. And then I'm reviewing Chinelo Okaranta's novel, Under the Udala Trees. I am reviewing Janine Capo Crusette's novel, Make Your Home Among Strangers. I'm reviewing Dolan Perkins Valdez's novel, Balm, B-A-L-M. My accent makes it sound like bomb. <laughs> um, I'm reviewing a new Chicago writer, Tony Bowers. He has a collection that's set on the South Side called On the Nine. Um, Naomi Jackson's book that whose title I'm going to not get totally right, but it's about Starbird Hill. The star side of Bird Hill. Yes, thank you. Sorry. I have all these books in my head at the moment, so I'm getting them mixed up. Uh, Angela Flournoy's um, The Turner House. And three more books that I can't remember, but they're on my bookshelf. How are you reading all the, Are you reading all those books at once? Ten books? Um, I am read. I'm taking a weekend and doing one, putting it down, taking the next three days, so three days to each book. And um, I, yeah, I, I I kind of open them, look at the first paragraph, and then I put them in order of which ones I I I want to read, and I take them with me on airplanes and trains since I'm on book tour. So I'm pretty much flying three four days a week, so I take them with me and I read them on the planes. Okay, well, Amina Gaudier, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being a guest on the Read More podcast. Thank you for having me. We're giving away two free personalized signed copies of Amina's The Loss of All Lost Things. 
You can find out how to win on our website, readmorepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at readmorepodcast and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash readmorepodcast. And if you like the show, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.